Revelation chapter 14. John the Baptist was baptizing out at what's, what's called Bethany beyond Jordan. In the Hebrew, it's Bet-Abara. That is house of passage. Because where John the Baptist did his baptizing was the same location that the children of Israel crossed into the promised land. The house of passage, Beth-Abara. It's about 20, 25 miles east of Jerusalem. That's where we do our baptizing when we go to the land of Israel. It's, it's a, within a few miles, we're right there in that same place. It's a beautiful, deserty, palm-treed area. Water's nice and muddy. Perfect. <laughs> But John, he was there baptizing, and in John chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as he saw Jesus coming to him. And again, the next day, John 1, 35, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. See, that's what it takes to follow Jesus. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Verse 1 of chapter 14, Then I looked, and behold the Lamb. I'm going to stop right there. Because after several weeks of looking at the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, I am glad to behold the Lamb. It is good to just look at Jesus to behold the Lamb. John has seen some horrifying things. He's had some terrifying vision. He's been caught up to to get a perspective that he shares with us in terms of dragon and beast and false prophet. And it's upsetting and it's disconcerting. And he looks and behold the Lamb and all is right in his world. Behold the Lamb. It's always good to behold the Lamb. Especially when you're in the midst of crisis or turmoil or, or uncertain, even threatening times. Man, behold the Lamb. Look to Jesus. You feel like evil is extending, wickedness is winning? You feel like Beelzebul is on a beastly, barbaric bender? <laughs> Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. It truly is an answer to instant peace. When you're stressed about anything, stop and behold the Lamb. And look at where he's standing. Then I looked and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion. We hear Zion named 163 times in the Bible. And note this, in every case but one, it always designates Jerusalem. Behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. It's Jerusalem in Israel at the center of the world. First time we hear the word Zion used, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, David captured the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, God says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 48, verse 2, and there are dozens of verses, but Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Mount Zion, Jerusalem. 2 Kings 19, verse 31, for out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this, Mount Zion. 
And Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So put a marker down right here at the beginning of Revelation 14. Note that John sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, in Israel, on the earth. We're back on earth. Okay? That's the location of this scene. Now, there are those who disagree, who who would say otherwise. They'd say, no, no, no. This has to be a heavenly scene. John sees the Lamb standing on the heavenly Mount Zion. The problem with that perspective is all the times that Zion is named in the Bible, there's only one time where it has a heavenly suggestion to it. Just once. 162 references to Zion as Jerusalem and one in a spiritual sense. And even that, listen to it. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come to Mount Zion. Now, the Hebrew pastor there is speaking of the heavenly Mount Zion, truly, but listen, this is only suggestive of heaven. And not actual heaven. It speaks of the heavenly hope of our faith that when you put your faith in Jesus, you come to Mount Zion. How many of you, in putting your faith in Jesus, immediately were transported to heaven? The heavenly Mount Zion in in Hebrews chapter 12 is indicative of the heavenly scene. Zion used as that picture of of the throne, of the of the power of God, of the place of His rule, and yet, and yet, it's a spiritual picture. You can put it this way: when you come to Christ, you stand before eternity. When you give your life to Jesus, you stand at the heavenly Mount Zion. We're there right now. Do you realize that? Even this morning, I know it doesn't look like it, but we're we're there. Standing before the heavenly, the the spiritual Mount Zion. That awesome, beautiful overlook of eternal life. And, And note the Hebrew pastor says, we are enrolled in heaven. We're enrolled in the classes. They haven't started yet. But we're enrolled there. So we're looking forward to, looking into, and this is a true and magnificent and spiritual reality. But again, that's the only time Zion is used in a spiritual sense. All the rest time, it is a physical, literal sense of Jerusalem. And that's where I believe the Lamb is standing. Here in Revelation 14, verse 1. All eyes are on the Lamb. On Mount Zion. Earthly Jerusalem. And by the way, this tells us when Revelation 14, the first part of the chapter anyway, when it is happening. What do you mean when it's happening? Aren't we at the midpoint of the tribulation? No, this is speaking of Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. We jumped to the end? Yes, we did. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 3, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. I'm coming to Zion, God said through Zechariah. Zechariah 14 verse 4, we know in the return of Jesus in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Mount Zion speaks of all Jerusalem. I'm coming back to Zion. Revelation 14 is an extenuation here of the parenthetical pause that we are still in. 
John is giving a lot of information here in, at the midpoint. Before we head into the last three and a half years in the study, a lot of information, things to see. This is an interlude of hope and encouragement. And as I said, boy, we need it after seeing the beast. It's a nice break after looking at the dragon. And John reminds us here, reminds his readers, even back in the first century, before continuing on into the judgments of the Great Tribulation, he reminds us, look, there's hope. This is what we're coming to. This is what you can count on. So, Jesus, behold, the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. And for you note takers, listen, I'm going to break this teaching into three parts. And we've already done part one. We're way ahead this morning. Part one is simply a vision of the Lamb. A vision of the Lamb. Because as I said, in all sense, in all cases in life, a vision of the Lamb is what we need. It's how we get through the tough days. It's how we rejoice in the good days. With a vision of the Lamb. Don't stop looking at the Lamb. Don't stop keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the Lamb. But the Lamb is not standing alone. Then I looked and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with Him, 144,000. 144,000. These are the 144,000 bondservants of Israel. There isn't another 144,000. These are the same that we saw back in chapter 7. In fact, if you want to flip back there for just a second, Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, where the angels were told, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from where? From every tribe of the sons of Israel. And to be clear, he names them Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Shimon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. All the tribes listed. Who are these people? Clearly Jews. Clearly Israel, 144,000 sealed out of Israel. We talked about them before. These were the 144,000 sealed for evangelism in the tribulation. Sent out with the message of the gospel. We talked about the impact of their ministry. When you read Revelation 7 and the countless multitudes in heaven who come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation, after the rapture of the church, People coming to faith in Jesus by the ministry of the 144,000 along with the two witnesses. I mean, God is pulling out all the stops in those first three and a half years to get people saved. And this is the 144,000 bondservants of Israel. Note that it's not the 72,000. It's not the 108,000 or even the 139,999,000. It's the 144,000 signed, sealed, and delivered. Another great encouragement for John's first century readers in this Revelation letter that there are all 144,000 present and accounted for. Get that. Not one was lost. Not one fell back. Not one skipped out on the mission. Not one went AWOL. Not one fell. All 144,000 make it through 
this tribulation period. Cross the seven years. And sometimes we need that reminder as well. To behold the Lamb, yes, but also to remember we're going to make it through. That the Lamb will get you there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, He will also confirm you to the end. Do you believe that? Am I moving too fast for you this morning? Do you believe that? He will confirm you to the end. Do you believe that? He will confirm you to the end. Do you believe that? You get it, Chuck? He will confirm you to the end. Do you believe that? Okay, you're getting weaker, not stronger. Come on, brothers and sisters. He will confirm you to the end. Amen? Thank you. This is good news. So why do Christians say, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm good enough. Stop looking at yourself and behold the Lamb. Right? And we have talked about this before. If you're uncertain of your salvation, it's because you're looking in the mirror. If you're certain of your salvation, it's because you behold the Lamb who will get you through. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, John writes, back in chapter 14, I looked and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000. They are all there. John Walvoord says, this is a prophetic vision of the ultimate triumph of the Lamb. John is looking forward. He's at the midpoint of tribulation. But in this parenthetical pause, in this interlude of hope, he looks forward and sees Jesus in His return. Sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Sees Jesus with the entirety of the 144,000 of Israel. Walbert says, following his second coming, when he joins the 144,000 on Mount Zion at the beginning of his millennial reign. That's what John sees. Then I looked and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of their father written on their foreheads. Point number three, the value of the seal. The value of the seal. Point number one is the vision of the Lamb. Point number three is the value of the seal. No, I don't have problems with math. We'll get to point number two in just a second. But I have to introduce this. The value of the seal. Note that. I want to talk about it for just a minute and now I'll come back to it. But first of all, you might ask the question, well, Rick, you're saying that this is a scene from the end of the tribulation at the beginning of the millennial kingdom why is it here why isn't it in chapter 19 in the chronological flow of the book you, you keep telling us follow the chronological flow it's simple it's easy to see why would John suddenly insert this here well part of the reason as I've told you is he's inserted several things right here in the middle that are bigger than just one thing he's overlaid things in this parenthetical section but there's more to it why is this scene here? I would say contrast in context. Meaning what? Meaning this. Chapter 13 introduces the mark of the beast. Chapter 14 introduces the seal of the lamb. 
We've just talked about this mark, his name and or his number, 666, inked on the right hand or on the forehead. The mark of the beast. And Wednesday night, and it's interesting to consider and think about, we've talked about the, the little implants, the little microchips that everybody's into, biohacking. Getting that in there so you can just use your hand to open doors or pay for stuff. You can use your forehead. Although, as I said Wednesday, I think that's a little weird. I don't know how you're going to do that. You put your head down on the counter when you're buying food or something, you know. That's 7214. Okay. Prophecy students for years and years have been fascinated by this whole idea of the chip and the implant. And it may well be because it has to do with buying and selling. But the reality is it's a mark. So whether there's an implant involved or not, there's a mark on the right hand. There is a mark on the forehead. There is something inked into the skin that designates the name or the number of the beast. Which, as we talked about Wednesday night, also tells us this is something people choose. It's not something forced upon them, although there's going to be high pressure, but they choose to have the mark of the beast. It's a decision to be loyal to the beast above and over Christ himself. Well, chapter 13 introduces the mark of the beast. In contextual contrast, now we see the 144,000 bearing the seal, not the mark of the beast, but the seal of God, which is the name of the Lamb and the Father written on their foreheads. The mark of the beast, chapter 13. The seal of God, chapter 14. John is pointing to the contrast, the difference here. And the difference is huge, and the difference we ought to be aware of. The mark of the beast is temporary, and it's physical, whereas the seal of God is eternal and spiritual. It doesn't mean less significant. Spiritual doesn't mean... You know, we need to get the idea out of our heads that spiritual is something that's esoteric. Or ghostly. No, no. Spiritual is more real than physical. Spiritual is eternal. Spiritual is depth and meaning. It's it's profound and true. God is spirit. So this is something spiritual far more significant than a tattoo on the right hand or on the forehead. The mark of the beast guarantees condemnation. The seal of God guarantees salvation. The mark is for buying and selling material goods. The seal protects and empowers the bondservant. Which one would you rather have? The ability to buy stuff? Or the protection and empowerment of the Holy Spirit of the living God? See, the 144,000 have to take the gospel into all the world in its darkest, most rebellious seven-year season of history. You, You think life's hard now? You think being a Christian is difficult in the world today or in America 2019? Imagine being one of the 144,000 on a mission to take the gospel in the tribulation. During the rise of the beast and the power of evil, the absence of the church and the Holy Spirit. Can you even imagine how hard a task will be set before them, and yet it is handled with great success. Not a single one of the 144,000 will bow to the beast. No, they'll stand with the Lamb. How will they do it? How do they get through? Well, they know the value of the seal. The value of the seal. They understand something. Or at least they experienced something, and that is this seal is protection. 
And this seal is power. The seal is is covering. The seal is confidence to carry out the mission before them. They have the seal of God. And as we talked about several weeks ago, so do we. So do you. If you're in Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You think think the 144,000, wow, they got a seal of God. And so do you. So do do I. I was going to say, so do me, but that's bad English. John 3.33, John the Baptist said, He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For him whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Spirit without measure. An immeasurable seal of the Holy Spirit. That's the seal that you've been given if you are in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Him. 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And I hope you're jotting these three verses down. That is 2 Corinthians 1 21, Ephesians 1 13 and 14, and Ephesians 4 30. But Ephesians 1.14 tells us the Holy Spirit of promise is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. What does that mean? He's going to see you through. He will see you through. You have the seal. You have the inheritance. You have the guarantee that you'll be there. You're God's own possession. And God doesn't let go of stuff easily. He doesn't want to let you go. Ephesians 4.30, so do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's kind of a heavy verse. I'm sealed. Yes, thank you, Jesus. I'm sealed. Wow, covered. I'm sealed. Empowered to do what I can't do. What I don't have the ability to do on my own. I have the power of the Spirit of God in me. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul says, by whom you've been sealed. How do I do that? Listen, the seal isn't just a promise of the future. It is potency for today. The seal of God on the foreheads of the 144,000 will empower them to do what God's called them to do. In the same way, the seal of God in your life, the Holy Spirit in your life, will empower you to do what God has called you to do. Not just to be there. That's part of the promise. That's part of the seal. You have the Spirit. He's going to get you home. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. But the reality is, His Spirit is in you and upon you and alongside you to empower you in the life that you live right now. My life is so hard. We whine too much. We have got to get over ourselves. How do I get over myself? Behold the Lamb. And know the value of the seal. Vision of the Lamb, the value of the seal. Well, that's the third point. I'll come back to it. Second point. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters. And like the sound of loud thunder. 
And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I like the King James translation of that. It sounds, the voice sounds like harpists harping on their harps. <laughs> Come on. I mean, I don't know. No, the, the sound of music is what he hears. This remarkable sound. Point number two is the virtue of the song. Vision of the Lamb. The value of the seal. But in between, the virtue of the song. I heard a voice from heaven. And this voice is singing. Wait a minute. Where are we? I thought we were on earth. John's hearing a, a voice in heaven. You, Rick, you're saying it's Mount Zion on earth, and this is Jesus on earth, and, and the 144,000 on earth on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Yeah, that's right. Stay there. Well, how come there's a voice from heaven? Good question. The Lamb and the 144,000 are on Mount Zion on the earth. The song is coming from heaven. And I remind you back in Revelation eleven nineteen that the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. We have a, a very firm line, somehow we've written in our own heads, between heaven and earth. Heavenly things are distant. You know, earthly things are now and, and reality. And, and, and we don't understand, I, I don't think that that line is going to start to get blurred in the tribulation. And in the millennial kingdom, that line is not going to be there at all. The connection between heaven and earth. Man, right now, the distance seems huge. In the kingdom, not so much. Right now, the earth is out of tune with heaven. We're singing different songs down here. Making different music. In the kingdom... Heaven will not seem so far away. You could say, in the kingdom, heaven and earth will be in tune. Verse 3, And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. They sang a new song. Who? Not the 144,000. They are learning the song. This is choir practice for them. The choir director is the they singing the new song for the 144,000 to learn. And I believe we are hearing the singing, get this, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is singing. How do you know? Well, sounds like the voice of many waters. Wow, that, that's... That's how Jesus is described. Loud thunder. Well, that sounds like God speaking. Harpists, perhaps the intonations of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this isn't without prophetic precedence. If you'll keep your finger there, turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah 3.12, are you there? But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people. And they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. And I believe that Zephaniah is prophesying at least in part of the 144,000 right here. 
Because this description of this remnant... Now, the 144,000 is not the entire remnant of Israel. They are part of that remnant. But that's who is being spoken about here. That is the remnant of whom the 144,000 are part. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. But shouts of joy in the Hebrew is the word rena, which means singing. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you even imagine God singing? God singing over you, victoriously singing. Do you know that He does even now? Do you realize that even now in our lives, we think that we do all the singing. God sings over His people. Psalm 42, verse 8, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song, His song, will be with me in the night. The song that He sings. The song that sings us through. To hear the Lord sing, does that seem strange to you? God singing over you? His song? Well, we have a direct example that Jesus sang along with the apostles. Matthew 26, verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I've always wondered what kind of singing voice Jesus had. What is, I I, I have a sense of the kind of singing voice Peter had, but Jesus. I was sinking on the Sea of Galilee. What was Jesus' voice like as they sang a hymn? If you've ever wondered what kind of singing voice He has, note that God sings over you. God sings over me. And the invitation for us to sing back to Him, it's a two-way street. We praise Him in song. He sings over us in love. And God is teaching this special song back in Revelation 14 to the 144,000. What's great is as you study through the Revelation, and we could do a whole sermon just on this, we all have our songs. We all have our songs that are unique to the group. There's the song of the redeemed. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Here there's the song of the 144,000 that they are taught to sing. It'll be their song. We get to listen to it. We'll hear them singing it. I can't wait. Then in Revelation 15, verse 3, maybe next Sunday we'll look at this, the song of Moses and the Lamb, which is a song specific to the tribulation saints. That is people who missed the rapture of the church, went into the tribulation, but came to faith in Jesus anyway, died for their faith, are found in heaven, and they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Singing. Don't discount the singing. 
The Bible is rife with examples and calls for us to sing. Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. See also Ephesians chapter 9, 5, verse 19. Because Paul repeats himself as he says in Colossians 3.16 that we are to be singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Bible's filled with it. Filled with song. Beautiful, marvelous songs. By the way, I read an article recently by Jan Markell, and, and I tend to agree with Jan Markell on an awful lot of what she has to say about eschatology and revelation in the end times. I think she's spot on on a lot of the prophecy stuff that she shares, and you can look Jan Markell up online. But she wrote an article um, specifically about worship. I sent it to Rachel just to kind of upset her a little bit. <laughs> we have that relationship. Um, she... So this article was just about song and worship in the church, and Jan Markell has a big problem with where she sees it going. That a lot of it is all lovey-dovey. She calls it theoromanticism. And she had some valid points in terms of us getting all into the emotion and forgetting the depth of what we're, who we're singing to and what we're singing about. However, theoromanticism, I'm not sure that's an unbiblical concept. Right? Read the Psalms. If those are not theoromantic, I'm not sure what is. David in love with the Father. David pouring out his heart to God in psalms that are romantic. We could set them to music and sing them today. And if we didn't mention the Lord in them, people would just think it was a love song. It is good to sing love songs to the Lord. The reason why the Bible has so much in terms of song is because, listen, because we will Worship God. We will, every last one of us, sing to the Lord. Why don't we practice it more here? Worship night is tonight at 6.30. (laughs) Come practice with us. Come be in the choir learning the songs. See, when I I talk about it, it's funny, this morning I had, before I even got my coffee, I had four people stop me and say, I'm on time. (laughs) I just want you to see, and I I noted all of your names, wrote them down, so we'll put that in the ledger, you know, take care of that. (laughs) You know why I talk about being on time or even early for worship? It is not about punctuality, it's about spirituality. Do we love Jesus? Do we love the Lord? I remember back when my wife and I, when we first started dating, and I was off in Texas for an entire year, and she was in California, and we're writing letters and phone calls back and forth. I remember when I landed at the airport, Cheryl wasn't late. Because she loved me. (laughs) What can I say? Do you love Jesus? Why are we late for Jesus? That's the only point I'm making. It's not to say we have to be on time and start at 8.30 sharp because that... No, just because if you're looking forward to loving on Jesus, to praising God, to worshiping the Lamb, be here for it. Worship. It's not to expedite our services or to make Rachel and the worship team feel appreciated. No. Worship is not about... Just the vocal cords. It's about playing on the heartstrings. 
It's about having some sense of emotion and love toward and for our God. And there are holy, heavenly consequences to our worshiping here and now. You will sing to the Lord. You will worship God. But we're called to do it right now. Psalm 66, verse 1. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Psalm 95, 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. So my question to you, brothers and sisters, are you learning the songs? Are you learning the songs of our salvation? Because we're going to join this heavenly choir. They'll sing a song, then we're going to sing our song, then someone else will sing their song, then we're all going to sing together. And note that while we're praising God now, we are training for worship then, and we best all get used to it. Because we're going to be praising 24 eternal when we get there. When Jesus calls us home. And by the way... It doesn't matter if your singing voice sounds like a bellowing cry of a dying yak. (laughs) Sing! Make a joyful noise! Sing to the Lord with gladness in your heart. Worship God and don't worry about anyone on your row going, Dude, get a bucket. (laughs) You know, when you gain a vision of the Lamb, when we begin to understand the virtue of the song, well then perhaps we will truly know, and now back to point number three, the value of the seal. The value of the seal. I remind you the 144,000 were sealed bondservants of God seven years before this scene that we get a glimpse of, a sneak peek, a preview of in Revelation 14. How'd they do? How did they do? Well, they're all there. That's a sign. Verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Well, of course, because they're the 144,000. They're the super spiritual ones. They're not anything like us. Do we really think that? Do we really read these verses and set them off on a pedestal over here saying we can never be like that? We could never emulate this behavior. They're the 144,000. Of course they're chaste. Of course they follow the Lamb. Of course they're blameless. We aren't. You know what? We don't know the value of the seal. We do not understand the value of the seal. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. Paul said, The firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His and... Everyone who names the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. How's your abstinence? How's the week been in terms of wickedness? Well, I haven't done anything really wicked. 
What I'm saying here is there's got to be an outer working of the inner sealing of the Spirit in our lives. Otherwise, have we been sealed? I mean, look at the sealed. Consider the sealed. They are sexually pure. That is something Americans do not understand. They follow, they they pursue the Lamb. So they're pure. They pursue the Lamb. And they know they've been purchased. Pure, pursuing, purchased. Why? Because they have the seal. They are sealed. They're pure. Think think about that. 144,000 chaste virginal men. I was sharing this with my wife last night. She said, is that possible? (laughs) 144,000 virgin men fanning out across the earth with the gospel message. And Cheryl did ask me, well, are they, are they all virgins? Well, they're all virginal. In fact, the word chaste is parthenos, which is the Greek word for virgin. But I'll tell you what, you can be chaste in a faithful marriage. Chaste means to be pure. And a godly biblical marriage is not impure. It's pure. It's good. It's, it's holy before the Lord. And the thing that our culture completely dismisses is the power in purity. There is power in purity. Let me say that one more time. There is power in purity. It is so sad that we live in a world that thinks virginity and marital fidelity means weakness. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul said, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, the sexually immoral man, the word is pornea, sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Question is, who do you belong to? Who do I belong to? Do I belong to myself? Or do I belong to God? Well, if I've I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, if I've been sealed with His Holy Spirit, guess what? I don't belong to me anymore. I was bought with a price. If you're not biblically married, let me be clear. Genesis 1, 27. Matthew 19. Read it, listen to it. Jesus declared it. Biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Period. If you're not biblically married, stay out of the sack. Just don't. Don't go there. Don't do, Why? Well, you know, it's just what we do. I mean, it's unbelievable to me. You, you watch sitcoms, and I know sitcoms are not so much the thing, but you, you can binge watch any show on Netflix, and I guarantee you, if a couple goes out on a date, they will sleep together after the date. First date. That's what you do. That's what American culture teaches. I don't really care what American culture teaches. Culture is in a constant state of flux. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And these are the ones who are chaste. Who are pure before the Lord. 
And by the way, if you're biblically married, if you are biblically married, keep the marriage bed clean. Don't invite someone or something else into the marriage bed. The pornography that inflicts and infects so many Christians, male and female, we have the seal of the Spirit of God. The value of the seal. Maybe instead of looking at the screen late at night that seems so bright, we need to behold the Lamb. Maybe when the temptation rises to be impure, we need to pray for the power of the seal of the Spirit to keep us chaste. To keep us pure. What I'm saying to you all is this is not an impossibility. We actually live in an age where Christians think, I, I just, I can't help it, so... Thank God for grace. At least I've got grace, so... Because, you know, I mean, it's 2019. How do I keep myself from doing what we all do? I mean, it's just what we all do. No, it's not. 144,000 virginal men, I say it again, chased before the Lord. Why? Sealed by the Spirit of God. Now, someone might say... I understand what you're saying there, and I know what the Bible teaches on this, but why really does my physical body matter so much to God? He's spirit, right? I'm flesh. What's the big deal? Let me tell you what the big deal is. Romans 8, verse 6. The mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. That's the problem. You can sleep with what's your name. Guess what? Your mind will be hostile to God. You can spend the night with whoever he is. It will make your mind hostile to God. You will find yourself pulling back. Not wanting to be in worship Not wanting to be among other Christians. Not wanting to pray because you're too ashamed of where you've been until ultimately the conscience is seared and you're not ashamed anymore. You're just hostile to God. We don't understand the connection between flesh and spirit. What I do in the flesh affects my spirit. Equally, what happens to me in the spirit can affect my flesh. The value of the seal of the Spirit is that it can impact my life literally to physical purity. But again, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able, and I'll push it one step further, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I want so much to please God. Then stay in the Spirit. Focus on the Spirit. Recognize the value of the seal. And I am not saying this this morning to shame anyone into submission. No, the Lord's hand is open with love and acceptance and forgiveness even this morning if you've sinned in this way. His embrace is waiting for you and the seal of the Spirit available to turn to the Lord. To be pure. Purity. Man, purity isn't so daunting when you follow the Lamb. 
when your eyes are on Jesus. Practically, what does that mean? It just means that you're aware of and you embrace the immediacy of Christ in your life. In the back seat of the car. At his or her apartment late at night, which you shouldn't be anyway. And like I said, staring at the computer screen. If we follow the Lamb, if we are aware of Jesus in the immediate, with us, right there, present. I I used to say to teenagers all the time, hey, you can do anything you want that you would do in the presence of Jesus. Because they would always ask the stupid question, how far is too far? (laughs) What you're saying is, how much can I get away with and still be good to go? How far is too far? I'll tell you what. Anything you can do with Jesus right there with you, go ahead and do. The immediacy of Christ in your life. The value of the seal of His Spirit. The seal of His Spirit is the immediacy of Jesus. Or your other choices, you can ignore Him, discount Him, and push Him aside. And discount the value of the seal. These are the ones who have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, He says. And these have been purchased from among men. Purchased. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, Paul, after saying, flee sexual immorality, he turns around and says, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Use your physical body as an instrument of praise and glory to the Father. Think about that. It's not just your singing voice that worships God. It's your entire body that brings glory to the Father if, in fact, you are pure. Living chaste. You were bought with a price. What was that purchase price? 1 Peter 1, verse 18. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So next time you feel like satisfying the flesh, consider His flesh. Pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, verse 5, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. That's the purchase price. And knowing the price, the sealed know something else. The price that's been paid, the seal, sealed understand the promise of inheritance, that is eternal life, has been bought and paid for. It is a done deal. The value of the seal is for then. And the value of the seal is for now. Eternal life then. Empowerment now. The value of the seal empowered the 144,000 and us, and us to purity. And to pursue the Lamb wherever He goes. With confidence that we have been purchased by God as His produce. Or His produce, that is, His first fruits. Verse 4, these are the ones who have not been... Well, down at the end of verse 4. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. I like that. First fruits, the produce of God. First fruits, there are three mentioned in the Bible. Three who who have this designation of being first fruits. Jesus is number one. Jesus is the first fruits 
from among the resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15.20 Christ has also been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So He's the first fruits offering to God. The church. The church is the second group, also called the first fruits. But we're the first fruits of creation. James 1.18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Christ the first fruits, and then the church the first fruits, and then here in Revelation 14, the 144,000 are the first fruits of Israel in the kingdom age. The first fruits of those secured to come into the kingdom. Secured by God and by the Lamb. And verse 5, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Verse 5 takes an interesting turn. Because if we stopped at the end of verses 3 and 4, if we just read those verses, we would realize that, again, we are pure, or we are called to be pure by the seal of God, to pursue the Lamb, purchased as first fruits produce to God. And so the application there, we, we get it. That's just, man, that's just living the life by the seal of the Spirit. It's what the 144,000 do. It's what we can do by the same Spirit here and now. But then you get to verse 5, and it's interesting because there's a slight shift, at least in the meaning, that indicates what the 144,000 were doing. What do you mean? No lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. The word lie is pseudos. So no falsehood was found in their mouths. They only spoke what was true. And blameless. Blameless is the word amamas, which is it's the uh, antonym to the word momas. So you've got amamas and you have momas in the Greek. Amamas is without blemish. Momash, or momas means blemish. Without blemish, blemish. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 13, speaking of false teachers, note this, says they are stains and momas. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. False teachers are like a bunch of big zits. It's pretty gross, isn't it? I could be grosser. I could. Read an article the other day about Dr. Pimple Popper. I'll stop there. You're welcome. Blemishes. That's the false teacher. But without blemish means to be, get this, means to be the true teacher. What does this tell us about the 144,000? They're teachers. Every one of them. They do not deal in falsehood. They are unblemished. And we have that option, that opportunity. Some have the gift of teaching among believers. We know that's a spiritual gift. But all are called to teach. Every one of us. How do I do that? I don't know how to do it. Just look. You can be blameless or you can be blemished. With the word of God. The implication in verse 5 is that the 144,000 did not get off message. They never broke from the gospel. They didn't falter or compromise with the truth. Guess what? Anyone sealed with the Spirit can do that. Anyone who has the seal of the Holy Spirit can stay on message. Can offer the simple gospel of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Anyone with the seal of the Spirit can refuse to falter or compromise with the truth. Part of the reason that our country is in the mess that it's in is the church has compromised with the truth. The church has become blemished. The blemished bride. We need some Windex. That's a, <clears throat> my big fat Greek wedding, you know, she had a blemish, so get some Windex spray. If you didn't see it, that's fine. Listen. Random. <clears throat> Random. Random thoughts with Rick. I do that with Cheryl all the time. I'll just walk into the room and say something bizarre. She'll just look at me. It's fun. Pure. Pursuing Jesus. Purchased. Productive. They had the seal. And these are teachers going out with the Word of God. They, they do, in seven years, what we've been called to do for 2,000. With the same power. The same seal. The seal of God, the seal of the Lamb, the seal of the Father. In Christ, that's what we have. We have been given, my friends, a vision of the Lamb. We can sing by the virtue of His song because we have at work in us right now the value of the seal. And even right now, I wonder, is there anyone sitting here going, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't buy that. That's the problem. You have it. You don't have to buy it. It's been purchased. It's yours. It's there. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't know if that's me. Why do we do this? Why do we discount what is so immediately available to us? I think it makes all the difference. Knowing that I have the seal of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, what, what, what was that seal? For the 144,000. Where? Where was that seal? Look back at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father, that's the seal, written on their foreheads. Jesus on my mind. The Father in my thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's where the seal is. You have the seal of the Spirit. Guess what? The Spirit is sealing your mind to think about spiritual things. I'll put it to you this way. The Holy Spirit wants your mind. He wants your mind. He wants your soul. Because the soul is the battlefield. This is where all the fighting takes place. In the Spirit. We are all, by the way, you know we're triune. We're spirit, we're soul, and we're flesh. The flesh just wants satisfaction for the flesh. That's all the flesh ever wants. Whether it's a sexual thing, immorally, or a piece of chocolate cake, the flesh just wants satisfaction. Because that's what the flesh does. Make me feel good. You know, that's the flesh. And the Spirit. Boy, especially the Spirit. Born again. By faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit longs to be with Jesus. Loves to worship Jesus. Loves the sense of the presence of Jesus. And in between the flesh and the Spirit (laughs) is the soul. The mind. It's where we think about things. 
where we get confused. It's, it's where we process our information. And the Holy Spirit is saying, I want to be written on your mind. The name of the Father, the name of the Lamb, written on your mind, destroying speculations. Anything that's raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, we need that seal, so to speak, on our foreheads. And again, not a beastly mark of buying or selling or acquisition of material wealth in this world. We don't need that. We need the seal of the Holy Spirit. Because it is a seal of power and purity and protection and confidence. And one final thing, the seal of the Spirit, the value of the seal, it is a seal of declaration. And this is what we see, by example, in the 144,000, which is interesting to me because they haven't even been released yet. They haven't even been sealed yet. Do you realize that? We're talking about something that's going to happen. We actually come before. We should be example for them. But this morning, they are example for us because Isaiah 66, verse 19, God said, I will set a sign or a seal among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. It's talking about the 144,000. And they will declare my glory among the nations. That's why I've called them. That's what the seal is about. It is a seal of declaration. Well, I've talked about Jesus. Well, people know what the church believes, don't they? We have revivals and we have meetings and we have church services and videos. We're on YouTube. We're we're declaring, right? Hey, the only way to honestly declare God's glory in this world is by the seal on the forehead. What, What do you mean? What are you talking about? The 144,000 Jews will know. They understand. When you say to the 144,000 Jews, you're going to have a seal on your forehead. They would know what that means. Exodus chapter 28. I'll just read this to you. Verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal. Holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on a blue cord. It shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. And it shall, note this, it shall, listen, it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. The high priest. I'm speaking to a priesthood of believers here. The high priest had a mitre or a crown, a golden crown, pure gold, that Josephus describes. He says it was a gold plate, two fingers wide, adorned with three rows of the cyanus flower, from ear to ear, fastened in the back with a, a blue ribboned, Tied behind the head. And that seal, that plate of pure gold said in Hebrew, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. It's not how it looked. It was very simple. 
It's what it signified. Holy to the Lord. We have a seal. The seal of the Holy Spirit of the living God so that we may be, so that we may live holy to the Lord. Pure, yes. Purchased. Pursuing the Lamb. The produce of God. First fruits. Holy to the Lord until the day when we, along with the 144,000, will stand in great assembly on Mount Zion and there we will behold the Lamb.